Hey everybody, welcome to the Big Ticket Variety and iHeart's movie podcast. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Today, I've got Hugh Grant. But before we get started, I have to tell you that I interviewed Hugh on the phone. He was in London, I was in Los Angeles, so there might be a little bumps in the audio, but I promise it's not that bad. Besides, you'll want to listen through because Hugh has lots to say. He talks about his new Emmy nomination for A Very English Scandal, why he's thought about running for political office, and what happened when he was offered a role in a superhero movie. Stick around. We'll be right back. Ever thought you'd make a great switchboard operator or seltzer man or professional royal mistress? If old-timey jobs are your jam, we've got a podcast just for you. I'm Helen Hong. And I'm Matt Beat, and we host the new podcast, Jobsolete, taking a look at jobs that used to be a thing and now not so much. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find Jobsolete on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Now, you Grant. Hello, sir. Mark. How are you? Uh, just excellent. You, how's your day going? My day's going good. I'm glad we're finally connecting. Yes, I'm sorry. It's been chaos. No worries. No worries. Um, congratulations on the Emmy nomination. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Was it expected at all? No, I look, I'm the man who's spent... 35 years, never being nominated for anything. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, there's been a flurry in the last the last few years, but they've, it's all been very unexpected and, and very nice. Very nice. Is it, is it, and they seldom come, they wished for come. So are you someone who would prepare an acceptance speech, or are you going to just do it on the fly when you win? Obviously. <laughs> uh, I, I shan't win. <laughs> you have a good chance. It's not like everyone's nominated. Well, is that right? You would know more than me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm hopeless at this stuff. So why is a very English scandal very English? Well, I, to me, one of the most English things about it is that it's just so amateurish. You know, mm. this is a man trying to, kill a, trying to kill another man or trying to take a hit out on another man. If he was an American, he'd get it done properly. <laughs> but being a, um, an upper-class Englishman, it's just hopeless. You know, a friend says, I think I know someone who says, I think I know someone. And, you know, they end up with an out of work aeroplane pilot <laughs> who's a drunk and who goes to the wrong village and uh, is frightened of dogs. And uh, it's just uh, if you accept that failure is very English, amateurish failure, then, then I think, you know, nothing is more English than than the Thorpe scandal. But you also have, you know, James Bond. You know, the English have some he's really... He's fantasy. <laughs> There's nothing like James Bond really going on. Well, I don't know. You make a good point. I suppose we do have some trained killers. <laughs> um, but uh, on the whole, failure is the name of the game. Or uh, and, and, you know, I love the fact that all this takes place in the rain, you know, all that sort of attempted murder <laughs> in a terrible downpour with a large dog in the back of the car. <laughs> and, a, and it's a really crap car as well, a 1970s hopeless Triumph Dolomite or something. It, uh, with a smell of wet dog in the air. <laughs> and the, the, uh, 
the victim slightly fancying the killer. It's marvelously English. <laughs> you know what? As you're describing it, I'm like, this can't be real. <laughs> this has to be made up. <laughs> I know. I know. I agree. But it, but, it, but it really was. And I remember it. What do you think about Jeremy Thorpe? Do you find him sad? Yeah, very sad. Yeah. Very sad. I mean, I, and that's the key, really. If you can find their tragedy, then you can sort of quite like them. Mm. And, the, and it adds a bit of warmth under the reptilian exterior. Mm. Yeah. And he, I think he was sad. I think it was very, very difficult to be a gay man in the years when he was coming of age. And um, That's one thing. I also happen to think it's very difficult to be a narcissist on the scale that he was a narcissist because <laughs> it kind of prevents any real human connection. Right. And I think that's rather lonely. Mm. He was sad. He was a narcissist. And even till the day he died, it sounded like he would not acknowledge this affair. Correct. He would not. Um, in, our, in, in the brilliant adaptation by Russell T. Davis, uh, he did do that. He, he, he created that moment just before the verdict comes in in the courtroom when I'm sitting in the corridor with my barrister mm. and I come as close as I've ever come to confessing right. that it's true when I talk about all the dangerous liaisons that a gay man in those days was compelled to have, you know, right. furtive little uh, meetings and lavatories and so on. Uh, but I, but basically, no, he never he never came out. Did you find anything that you liked about Jeremy? I would say, people have asked me that before, I'd say it's not exactly that I liked him. It's that I enjoyed him. Mm. Uh, which means that I, I enjoyed his pathology, mm. his weird uh, English misery and pretensions and, and the, the, the vast distances between his exterior and his interior, uh, the strange contortions that people throw themselves into right. uh, to try and get through life. These are the things one enjoy, I, I enjoy as an actor and I enjoy as a viewer I, and I enjoy as a human. It's, it's a bit different from liking. Was he a kind man? Well, he, sometimes, I think he really loved his boy. You know, I think right. he loved both wives, even though to a certain extent they, they were just beards. Mm. But, um, so he was capable of love, but he was also uh, an absolutely pure, distilled narcissist mm. in a way that only politicians can be, really. And we have a lot of you those know, narcissists. It was all about him. <laughs> Well, that's what, you know, that's what I've, I realized researching Thorpe and, and certainly what I realized over the last seven years becoming involved in the British political scene for the mm. first time in my life was that the cliche, the cliche about politics being show business for the ugly mm. is absolutely true. It's, it's, it's all the same people, the same instincts. It's just they don't look as good. It's, it's <laughs> all the same me, 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 me. Right. And Boris Johnson is the absolute epitome. The, the, you know the the archetype. Why why do you think the world is embracing these men like Boris and Donald Trump? I think uh, there's a natural backlash to the uh, very smooth Teflon politics 
mm. that were kind of invented by Clinton and mm. then came over the Atlantic. Everything done by focus groups, by polling, mm. never making a mistake, never never falling into bear, into a bear trap, being endlessly politically correct to the point of, you know, pain, really. Right. I think there was always bound to be some backlash against that. And I think it's been very, that, that's been very cleverly magnified and exploited by some quite dark forces. And in this seven years, how many people have come to you and say, run for office? None. Would you ever? <laughs> I do. I, do, I think I, I get so angry reading mm. the news, especially now. So incandescently angry. Mm. I sometimes think that that would be a, a good thing to do. So what would be, uh, what would be your campaign slogan? Uh, well, my main slogan would be, uh, I don't want to be reelected. <laughs> seems to me that the, the, the desire to be reelected or a career politician uh, poisons everything. Wow, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, because it seems to me that the, the first, when po politicians these days make decisions about you know, any kind of political strategy, the first priority is how will this go for my personal career? Second is how will this go for my party? Mm. The third is how will this go for my, my backers who, you know, paid for me, especially in America. I, that, I think applies right. more than here. And, you know, somewhere way down the list is what's actually good for the country. And I think if you started a party that said, we really don't give a damn if we're elected or not again, um, we're just ordinary people who are coming in this, into this to do our public duty, try and save the country from a bunch of nuts. <laughs> it might be quite popular. So why don't you do it? Well, I have thought about it a bit, to be honest. Really? But um, I think I'm too easy a target. Mm. My, my, my cupboards are full of skeletons. My past is full of, you know, there's it, it, so much muckraking could go on. And I can take it. I've been taking that for a long time. Right. But I'm not sure I want my family to have to suffer that. Because we do know that there are a lot of politicians who make it no matter how many skeletons they have in their cupboards. I agree, <laughs> especially nowadays. Yeah. But as I said, it's not, it's not really about me. It, it, it's about my family. They wouldn't like it. Right. They're not politicians. They're, you know, three-year-olds. Uh, or, or my wife, who's not, not, not that kind of person. So I, 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 I don't think I can do it, really. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, Hugh recalls the time his parents saw him on the cover of a gay porn magazine. Plus, he reveals that he was recently offered, but he had to decline a role in a superhero movie. What do explorers, an army officer, and a Minnesota insurance salesman have in common? They all wanted to be the first to reach the North Pole, but only one of them made it. I'm Kat Long, science editor at Mental Floss and host of the new podcast, The Quest for the North Pole, which dives into the centuries-long race to explore the Arctic, find the Northwest Passage, and conquer the top of the world. With a cast of daring adventurers and some pretty determined amateurs, the race to the pole reveals the human desire to solve mysteries of geography and the soul. We'll look at the important Arctic expeditions that filled the blank spaces on the map and recognize how indigenous people made them successful. We'll examine what pushed explorers to venture ever farther into the unknown and uncharted, and how the climate crisis is changing the Arctic today. Listen to The Quest for the North Pole every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Now we're back with more of Hugh Grant. Let's go back to the show because, of course, watching the show, I couldn't help but think of Maurice, another closeted man. Yes, that's exactly right. Did you spot what I think is an echo, deliberate or possibly subliminal, at the end of the series? When I'm on the balcony mm-hmm. uh, celebrating the verdict with my, you know, my wife, or my mother whispers in my ear, of course, you know you're ruined, don't you? And I look all sad. Mm. And then we cut to Ben in, on a bus. And it's like a flashback to when we were happy and in love right. on a bus back in the 1960s. And I suddenly realized that was incredibly similar to the last scenes of, uh, or the last moments of Maurice. Wow. Of Maurice, when uh, I'm looking out of the window, I'm shutting the shutters, big metaphor. Mm. Uh, my wife is getting ready for bed. I'm taking off my tie, shutting the shutters. And as I shut them, I look out of the window. I look down out of the window at the garden. And it's a flashback to me looking down out of the window at Cambridge. And and there is Morris staring up at me, you know, with eyes full of love. Yeah, and I think there's a huge echo there. And I don't know if Russell intended that or if it was just something that, you know, came through him. That's pretty amazing. If he didn't think about that and it just came through him, that's pretty incredible. Well, maybe it certainly came through me because I remember suggesting to him. It was always written at the end of the series that that, that I would stare silently into the distance and then we'd see uh, Norman Scott on on a bus Mm. all alone. And I I said, I think this could work better if we, earlier in the series, we have a scene where we're very romantic on a bus. and. and then we did we did write that scene in, or Russell wrote that scene in. Uh, so it must have been some. So I think he must have been aware that's right. what we were trying to do. So when you when you signed on for Morris, did you anyone in your camp, anyone on your team say, you know what, you don't want to do a gay love story because you know this was a few years ago. <laughs> I, I love the idea. Uh, yeah, I love the idea that I might have had a team <laughs> uh, or a camp <laughs> back in. <laughs> 1984. <laughs> uh, I was a struggling uh, actor doing mainly uh, making a living from writing radio commercials for Red Stripe Lager and Mighty White Sliced Bread. And uh, and then this, yeah, weirdly, I'd sort of given up on acting. This, this audition came along. Uh, they said, Merchant Ivory want to see you for this film, Morris. And I thought, I'm not really interested in acting anymore. And, I didn't really want to go. And then my brother, who was a banker, and I was living with him in his house, and he happened to be home that day sick, and he said, no, don't be stupid. You need some money. Go. Mm. So he, I guess he was my team. And he <laughs> said, go. And no, no, no one ever said, certainly no one ever said, be, oh, be careful, it's a gay role. Hmm. Um, that, that never happened. And, and it was never really uh, ever featured. I mean, I think my parents were perhaps momentarily startled when I was, the front cover of Zipper magazine when the <laughs> film came out. Uh, I was a little startled myself because I didn't remember doing any shoot for it. How did, but, you, uh, how did your parents come uh, across Zipper uh, magazine? <laughs> well, I, I think it was there in the newsagent, you know. Perhaps, but who knows? Perhaps my father was looking for it. Who knows? <laughs> um, you, have a, you have another Guy Ritchie movie coming along. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's in his gangster, London gangster genre. Yep. 
and um, it's basically about marijuana and the state of the marijuana trade now, or marijuana crime turning to legitimacy. And uh, and there's a character of a really seedy private detective who would accept anyone's money, but mainly works for the lowest of the low newspapers, tabloid newspapers. And I think Guy thought it would be amusing to cast someone who's campaigned against that kind of stuff <laughs> as, a, as a private <laughs> detective working for a CD newspaper. And I, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you talk to any CD newspaper <laughs> reporters to find I out did, what they I do? Did because you did. I, I did. Well, one, yeah, I mean, I already kind of knew, but right. one of the weird developments over the last seven years of this campaign is that a lot of the guys who used to do all the dark arts uh, on the, paid for by the, the, the newspapers um, have swapped sides and come over to us mm. and tell us all their secrets and kind of love us now and um, work with us. And so, I, I yes, I had the strange experience of having lunch with a guy who'd hacked my phone again and again. <laughs> no. And he was rather nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, he knew everything about you. Um, <laughs> That's awful. He certainly did in 2004. <laughs> I mean, Christ. I hate to think what he must have heard. Wow. Um, but he was useful. Yeah. That is just so bizarre. How do you sit across from someone like that? Do you have forgiveness? Well, it's not the first time it's happened. Like I say, a, no, a, a number of these guys have come across. And we have a party every year around my birthday, the campaign does. <laughs> And um, every year, more and more and more people who've hacked my phone or stolen my medical records or, in one case, broken into my apartment oh. uh, are invited. <laughs> yeah. That's a, and I end up drinking with them. You know. That's a very English party. <laughs> but you have to remember these... A very English party. <laughs> but you have to remember these guys were the foot soldiers. Right. They, they were not the, you know, the, the, the bigwigs, the paymasters. They're still there. They're still in power in Britain. Right. Hmm. So I want to ask you, when was the last time you cried at the movies? Are you a crier? Uh, yes, pathetically so. <laughs> the older I get, the more I cry. If anyone um, expresses love, particularly for children or animals or each other, particularly across a stretch of time, or if they hold hands to comfort each other, I'm a, I'm a mess. <laughs> uh, so when was the last time you were a mess? I really don't know. I, 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 mean, I, I was having this conversation with someone today, and it's because I find films so moving, or drama so moving now, I kind of avoid it. <laughs> I have to watch comforting things, like Formula One motor racing or, or ladies' international tennis. <laughs> Everything else is too upsetting. Are you... Uh big blockbuster guy do you do the uh, marvel movies and all the superhero movies i don't i don't i've tried i must try harder what happened what happened when you tried i didn't understand where i was or what was happening <laughs> um <laughs> but i think i'd need to start at the very beginning but i'm sure they've come to you and asked you to pop up in one of these movies it has come up yeah. i must admit that okay and well, i would have done it but there was a there was a a scheduling and family issue. But otherwise, I was absolutely up for it. Which and that's when, I, that's when I started to watch them. Which one was it? I, I can't <laughs> say because... I, I, well, it's, 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 it's being made now. And, um, 
Uh, and I, I don't want to say because I don't want the person who's playing that role to think they weren't the first choice. Why why do you want to do it? I uh, it was a juicy role. It <laughs> was it was a, a juicy role, a good baddie. I love a good baddie. And do you remember the movie that really made you fall in love with acting? That really, when you looked at the screen, you said, I want to do that. Didn't work like that for me. Uh, but I certainly can remember the first sort of times I thought, Christ, he's good. And it was mainly Tony Hopkins. Yeah. I was obsessed with him. Uh, him in uh, Remains of the Day, with whom I had a minor part in. Mm. Him in The Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, him and Howard's End, him and all sorts of things. Marvellous. Him, Gene Hackman, you know, the usual suspects. Right. Uh, De Niro in almost anything. Taxi Driver, you know, Goodfellas. Uh, Marvellous. Is, is there a movie that you will watch over and over again and you'll never get bored watching it? There's not many of those, but Goodfellas is certainly one of them. Yeah. And at the other end of the scale, The Sound of Music, I'm ashamed to say, I have a soft spot for the sound of music. So when... In fact, my wife, who's Swedish and from the north of Sweden, where men are men, and they never really speak, they just chop wood and drink coffee, <laughs> uh, was horrified to find me the other day watching the sound of music. Not just watching it, but singing along with the mother superior when she <laughs> sings Climb Every Mountain. And Wait. crying, because I found it so moving. I was just going to say, I have a feeling you were crying. Oh, I was crying. It's, I mean, it's incredible. You know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rain drop, rainbow, till you find your dream. It's heartbreaking. So have you ever sung with Julie Andrews <laughs> in person? She was my mother in um, a movie of the week I did. Wow. In about 1990. Yeah. I made a, I was sitting there, an unemployed actor in London, and I got a call come and be in a movie of the week in LA about AIDS and Zelko Ivanik was my lover and Julie Andrews was my mother and um, mm. and I do an American accent mm. and it's, it's um, well they were marvellous people I, I think I let them all down but they were a very good team but did you sing with Julie? But it was surreal acting with, with it was surreal yeah I mean yeah there, there is you know there was Maria von Trapp and Mary Poppins coming out of her trailer towards me. <laughs> Do you ever... Strange. To me, she's the, biggest, she's, the biggest, she's the biggest star in the world and always will be. You know? Do you do you ever have those moments still, like surreal, starstruck? Do they ever, do they ever pop up? Uh, yes, all the time, yeah, sure. Sure. I shook Roger Federer's ha hand the other day and nearly fainted. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I just think he's so impressive. Hmm. Well, Mr. Grant, which I've been wanting to say this entire interview because I'm a journalist and I wanted to say, Mr. Grant, thank you for this. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, Mark. It's very nice to, to meet you on the phone. Well, I'm glad you made this happen. This is, I loved talking to you and hopefully I will see you at the Emmys. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks, Thanks sir. Bye-bye. That was Hugh Grant, and I'm Mark Malkin. Thanks for listening to The Big Ticket. Remember, a new episode drops every Thursday. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. Until next time.